What I want you to do this morning is we're going to take a detour from Matthew 22. We're going to go one gospel to the right and go to Mark chapter 13. And uh, that's in view of some current events, specifically what happened last Saturday with Israel, uh, the attack and terrorist attack on them that uh, drew my attention to go to a passage where I felt like I could ground us biblically and theologically in terms of what is God's path and um, sort of future for Israel, the plan for Israel? I think it's important for us to do that for a number of reasons, but one is because we follow in the wake of Israel's faith. Uh, as they go, it's in terms of believing Israel, we go. We're the ones that are grafted into the plan that God has been working in and through that nation from what we see in redemptive history. And as we see the events unfold, we have to understand that um, we need ever to be strong in our faith and sort of bridled in our spirit and appropriately, righteously indignant at wrongs being done and appropriately also having hope in Christ and the gospel and his return in light of events like these. So I thought I would catch our attention with some events. I'm not going to read the Bible back through the newspaper or through our phones, um, but I am going to look at Scripture and say, how are we supposed to think and feel about these events that are going on? I, I kind of retitled the message this way. It's not up on your screen, but what is Israel's future in the face of satanic evil? What is Israel's future in the face of satanic evil? Um, all the world, is, it seems, has been affixed on Israel. Um, it's sort of back on that country again. In terms of all of the world and all of the nations, Israel seems like a small place, a small plot, a small geography. I don't know the population of the, the nation in total, but it's still small-ish with an unflamboyant people group. Their temperament isn't flamboyant. They're not um, show-offs by any stretch of the imagination. They're not trying to vie for the attention of the world, and yet God continues to refocus it there again. We have a special interest in Israel because we, we worship the God of the Jews. We worship Yahweh. We worship God who chose Israel as a special people. We worship God who chose Abraham to be the progenitor or pioneer of faith, the first of this believing nation, who's the father of this people group, where through Abraham and his line and then this people and this land, all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That's Genesis chapter 12, 1 through 3, the Abrahamic covenant. We, we should have a keen interest on what's happening with Israel because it plays into one nation which gave us Christ, our Messiah. Jesus is the apex of the story of the Bible. We know that. He's a Jewish Messiah. Yeshua HaMashiach, the Messiah, our Savior, our Lord, our God, our King, who is fully human and by ethnicity a Jew, born in Israel, bar mitzvahed in Israel, crucified in Israel, resurrected in Israel, 
ascended to heaven from Israel. Jesus, the Son of God, born a Jew, and we give him our full and complete devotion. So when things happen to Israelites or to Jews, it, it should get our attention. I'm not into replacement theology. I don't believe that the church just takes over for what was promised to Israel as a people group originally. I believe that those promises are going to be fulfilled, that they are irrevocable. I believe that the church is God's people. I believe it is the, to the Jew first and the Gentile and that there is this beautiful oneness in Christ where we are, any believer is part of the church. But at the same time, the Bible is replete with full and concrete promises for the nation of Israel. So with that in mind, thinking about last Saturday is a little disconcerting, a lot disconcerting. 6.30 a.m., a terrorist group known as Hamas, which the Hebrew word for Hamas is violence, that's what it means, launched a missile strike from the Gaza Strip, the southern eastern tip of Israel, and leveled innocent Jews, families, leveling the IDF, but also innocent family members and towns and villages, slaughtering them, but that was a coordinated measure, as you probably found out if you're looking at the news, that an hour later, that, that was kind of just a, you know, it was a real thing for missiles to fall, but that was a sort of smoke and mirrors tactic so that they could hit the fence with a cyber shock that ultimately took this touch-sensitive wall fence down opened up holes in it. 80 different uh, points of penetration were opened up some way or another where Hamas entered in, fully armed, border defenses dropped, Jewish military especially vulnerable, the border guard there. Um, they were on lighter shift because it was a Jewish holiday. Hamas heavily armed entered and breached the fence and killed any guard that they encountered, progressing the terrorist attack to neighboring towns and villages. People did fight back, but ultimately it was a slaughter of families, whole families found dead. If you watch the footage, um, you know, children killed, babies known to be beheaded, people beheaded, um, soldiers that were dead were, were mocked and demoralized. Um, cars were stopped on the road. You probably saw this. Barricades were made to where they could just pick people off in their car, just executing them. This is not an act of war. This is an act of genocidal terrorism where in their satanically driven religious belief, they were killing out infidels, killing off infidels or unbelievers, people who do not believe in the Koran or Islam for the sake of their God, their supposed God. Hamas infiltrated homes. They would throw hand grenades into the home to smoke people out and then pick them off as they went outside. Women were raped, women were taken, girls were taken, kids were taken, probably to be trafficked. U.S. citizens were killed, U.S. citizens were kidnapped as well. 1,400 people, as far as my latest statistic, I don't know what it is, were known to have died. Um, you've probably heard of the um, sort of the attack of of um, people on hang gliders, Hamas coming in hang gliders to slaughter young adults who are at a dance. 
All of this is portrayed on video footage that was given by Hamas immediately because they pridefully wanted to make a statement to the world that they were powerful, that they were able to do this. There's no hiding behind anything. There's no blame shifting or obfuscation whatsoever. They want to make their statement in real time to the world that they could do this and that they were doing this in the name of, supposedly in the name of God, but this was totally an act of hate. It was a seared conscience going against people. These are not casualties of war. This is not moral equivalence, and this is not a cycle of violence between Arabs and Israelites. This is just murder with no delay whatsoever for them taking full responsibility. That would be one distinction between Nazism, where there's any kind of political hiding or behind the scenes. This is just out loud, flamboyant, terroristic, hateful, hard-hearted killing. And with the clear agenda to call for everyone who signs on to this false, their false religion to do the same. They're placarding Islamic religion to communicate the intent to call for a holy jihad. We heard about that for Friday, just, and you'll see people celebrating this in different parts of the world on video. To whoop up people to join this slaughtering of unbelievers or people who will not convert to their religion. According to their belief system, by killing an unbeliever, an unbeliever for their religion, they get instant heaven. Or by being martyred and doing the same. It's instant 72 virgins for perpetual physical gratification forever. That's what they believe is promised them. And so this anti-Semitic no conscience, no conscience um, act of violence and terrorism is empowered by Satan. I have no doubt of that. Now, any unbeliever is blinded by Satan. But I believe movements like these are deeply satanic, just as you would hear of, you know, children in Egypt, you know, the Israelites who were enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh. I believe that was satanic. People killed, babies killed off during that time, or the slaughtering of children by Herod. These are acts of satanic killing. Satan is a killer, a murderer. So what are the geopolitical implications? Well, I'm no expert in that. I'm here to, this morning, take us to the Bible. The Bible does intersect with geopolitical dynamics and prophecies and predictions, but I think it's more important that you get the grid of what's going on, just so you know that none of this is happening outside of the purview or plan of God. Prophecies about Gog and Magog are found in Scripture. Genesis 10, Magog is mentioned. First Chronicles 1 and 5, that area is chronicled wherever that exactly may be. It could be um, that these are distant powerhouse nations, distant from Israel to the east. So it could be Russia, it could be China, I don't know. We don't know what alliances are connected behind terrorism. We don't know what acts of war are going to happen in the future. Um, specifically named, we don't know, but we do know they're coming. Ezekiel 38 and 39 speak of Gog and Magog. Gog as an antichrist or the antichrist and Magog being a region. It says in Ezekiel 38, the word of the Lord, verse 1, came to me, son of man. 
speaking to Ezekiel himself, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince Meshech and Tubal, the prophecy and prophesy against him. Ezekiel 38, 14 through 16 says, Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, On that day when my people Israel are dwelling securely, will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north, you and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. Now, ultimately, God allows for this kind of destruction in the future that's apocalyptic, but Gog is satanically driven as an antichrist, and Magog is a region that is satanized and coming to come over, overwhelm Israel. God's holiness, it says, is vindicated. He says, I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me, when you through you when through you o gog i vindicate my holiness before their eyes Re- revelation 27 and 8 is the ultimate apocalypse that's the ultimate apocalyptic event um, that this is all talking about it's it's more clarified there that when the thousand years is ended at the end of the millennial kingdom satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. So he'll create the ultimate insurrection with the children and grandchildren who have um, been spared by the tribulation, who are, who are conscripted by Satan at the end to do battle against Jesus. And it says he'll come out and deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. So all over the world, everything's going to come in against Christ. And he calls this Gog and Magog. It's sort of a bigger picture of Antichrist and the nations coming against Christ to gather them for battle, but their number is like the sand of the sea. And ultimately, if you read the rest of the story in Revelation 20, Jesus wins. He burns them all to the ground. So this week, we're, we're, we're thinking through these alliances, I'm sure, with Hamas and then Hezbollah, which is the called the party of God, like the political party of God. They're Lebanese, but they're equal terrorists. And these groups uh, have brought dramatic circumstances. But ultimately, I want to ground these circumstances with Scripture on the level of doctrine. And doctrine is important because what we're talking about is a battle between true doctrine and their false religion. And they're pumping false religion. What do they believe? They believe um, in an Islamic antichrist that's the 12th imam in their Quran. They believe that this person is called the Mahdi, and um, they believe horrible events are going to come, chaotic events, and he's going to come rule over the Arabs for seven years and then bring about two resurrections, one to wicked and one to righteous. But ultimately, the whole idea is the Mahdi is going to bring Jesus under his power. Jesus will accept the Mahdi's leadership, and then the great branches of Abraham, which is basically Abraham's line, which is the Jews and the Israelites, and then the line of Ishmael will be, will be reunited. And that's, what, that's what's promised. And this political reunion is the great victory of the Koran, of their eschatology, of their end times, instead of hearts being changed, instead of truth be, reigning. And understanding that conversion is what matters. We fight for conversions. 
We stand for righteousness in politics, but we, we fight for conversions. Now, if you're in the military, we fight also on the front lines against this. So please hear me say that is also righteous and important. But it's important for us to fight for truth and to be grounded as Christians and to know how to give a ready answer to things that are antichrist. And to, at the same time, um, pray for the families of, of, who have lost loved ones. I mean, we need to grieve for Israel, grieve for people who've been hurt. But be unpanicked as Christians in the end times. John Calvin said this, he said, we don't know the exact end times, but we know that through every age, there's always been an antichrist raised up because the devil doesn't know when the end is exactly either. He doesn't know the future either. So he's always raising up an antichrist. He's always got a Hitler figure in every age and everybody thinks thinks it's the end. And so this might be, I mean, we know we're closer to the end than yesterday, but this might be the end, but it might not. But we need to be solid in our understanding of a false gospel, a satanically driven um, ideology that's being promoted throughout the internet. And we need to stand against that with the truth of the gospel. There's a driving force behind Hamas and behind Islamic religion. It's Satan. Satanic doctrine, identifying that makes the Hamas no less a terrorist, no less culpable, no less responsible, no less seared in their conscience, no less evil. They're going to be judged by God's wrath lest they repent. First John 4, 1 through 6, though, says we need to understand and be aware of the spirit of Antichrist in our age and see it for what it is. It's one thing for a cartel to go in and bomb people or something to happen as an event. It's another thing for a false ideology or a false religion to be pervasive throughout the world. So this is a bit of a harbinger to God's plan for the Jews, and it's a bit of a glimpse into the apocalypse. So so what does the apocalypse really look like? And what are we supposed to be like? Well, I think we're supposed to look into Scripture now and see an apocalyptic window through Scripture as to what's coming. Now, again, this is me going to Mark 13 because I've studied it through. Um, This is a preview of coming attractions. We'll be in Matthew 24 in a few months, and it's going to be the same stuff. So if you sort of are grasping it now and you want more of a, a thorough study, it's coming from the exposition of the word of God, but we're in Mark 13 this morning. And I believe this is a window into the tribulation, right into the middle of the seven-year tribulation. It's called the abomination desolation, where the Jews who are elect, who are the believing ones, survive the tribulation. And this is a text where Jesus is saying, this is how they're supposed to survive it, and we need to learn from their survival tactics, okay? So let me read to you our section. It's Mark 13, beginning at verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray it may not happen in the winter. 
For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds and from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Israel's going to be in a storm in the seven-year tribulation. And notice verse 19. Just look at this again. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. It's never going to be as bad as it gets at that point. It's never been as bad as it will be in that point in the world's history. And that's not to disrespect what just happened. It's not to lessen the horrific violence of what happened at Gaza or in Israel. It's, it's not to take any of the blame away from Hamas and the horrific thing that they did. But that is a glimpse into future apocalyptic tribulation and the testimony of believing Israel through that is supposed to affect us this morning that's all that's what I'm appealing for I want to be like the 144,000 Jews who persevere through that they're grounded they're grounded in this plan Jesus said this plan he spoke this plan so that they would follow it and so that we would learn from it He's speaking to Jews here, but he's saying, again, look, look back. He's saying, let the reader understand, verse 14. He's saying, connect the dots between the prediction in Daniel and connect the dots with what I'm saying right now and connect the dots with the future so that you will be grounded and ready for the storm that is ahead. It's a spiral of circumstances. It's life and death scenarios. It's false Christ that need to be avoided at all costs and run from. And this is the kind of persecution that hits Christians in every age. So it's for the Jews, but we're not far from the Jews because we, from believing Jews, we claim the same Jesus. These dynamics point today, point to the end in our dangerous world. And we see in verse 14, a shift prophetic here to the apocalypse or the end of the age. He's setting an expectation. An expectation of things getting really bad. How bad? Worse than the flood. Worse than anything in the ages of history, of church history and persecution. Worse than any world war that's ever happened or will happen. It's a world-scale tribulation. 
So what's expected of believers during the tribulation? That's the idea. The big idea is the expectation. And point one, what believers are expected to do in the worst possible circumstance, they are to flee Antichrist. You flee Antichrist at all cost. Throughout history, people have always thought that there was, it was the end of the world. My grandparents certainly thought that Adolf Hitler was bringing about the end of the world with Auschwitz, with the murder of six to nine million Jews. Certainly, this is the end. The Cold War during the 80s, who remembers that? I was a kid during that time. Mikhail Gorbachev, you just thought, you know, I wonder if we're supposed to get burned up in a nuclear holocaust. I lived outside of Norfolk, Virginia, just like here in Anchorage, Alaska. These are kind of kill zones where you think, man, I'll just wake up in heaven. You know, it's what's going to happen. 9-11 happened. It shook us up as a, a nation. Is it the end? The apostles thought it was the end at AD 70 when Titus of uh, Rome came and sacked Israel and upended it, starved it out. Everybody's always thought it's the end. But again, Jesus is saying this tribulation is going to be on a greater scale than all of that. So who is this tribulation for? I believe, biblically speaking, this is talking about the 144,000 believing Jews. The church, according to 1 Thessalonians 1, 10, and chapter 5, verse 9, is spared from the wrath that is to come in the future. Revelation 3, 10 uh, represents the church of the church by the church of Philadelphia as our model, and that says the church is kept from the hour of trial. Romans 5, 9, Ephesians 5, 6, Colossians 3, 4 all speak to the church being spared from wrath. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 gives the great prophetic picture of Jesus' immediate return. John, at the end of Revelation, Revelation 22 says, Maranatha, which, said, which means even so come Lord Jesus. He's just written all of what's going to happen in the future at the end times. And he's asking for Jesus to come back now, immediately. And so that leads me to believe that the church will be raptured out at the trumpet, caught up together in the air. Believers who've lost loved ones will be reunited with those who have died in the Lord, will be gathered back and ingathered and spared from that wrath. But who's left here? None other than what Revelation 14 says, the 144,000. John's revelation speaks of them singing a new song before the throne because they've been redeemed from the earth. They're there, but God is fulfilling his Old Testament prediction, prophecy, and promises to the nation of Israel. 144,000 mathematically representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Revelation 14.1, I looked and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like a roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I had heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who had not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. And it is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as First fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they were blameless. They forsook the Antichrist, 
They were evangelistic to the whole world. Uh, the announcement of the 144,000 is announced with an angel in Revelation chapter 7, verse 4, where there's this angel who is pronouncing who's pronouncing a gospel call, evangelistic call for people to be saved. Revelation 7, 4 says the 144,000 are sealed are sealed. Revelation 14, 6, I should say, and verse 7 speak of these 144,000 winning people to Christ, winning the nations to Christ. In the midst of this, there's the abomination desolation. This is where Antichrist is fully revealed and he defiles the temple in Jerusalem. You say, what does that look like? Well, first of all, you need to understand it's a seven-year tribulation and this is happening right in the middle of seven years, so three and a half years. The Jews here under Jesus' teaching are to understand these things. They're to tie together like Daniel 9, 24 through 27 with this. In Daniel um, 9, it says that there's a seven-day week that is uh, representing seven years, and at half of the week or at three and a half years, this is when Antichrist will show up and defile the temple. Daniel 7, 25, he shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times and a half, meaning right in the middle of the tribulation. Revelation eleven two speaks of 42 months. Revelation 13, 5, 42 months at... Revelation 32, 5, his mouth is uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and, it was, al- and he, it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. That's synchronizing perfectly Daniel 7's prophecy and Daniel 9's prophecy with Revelation 11 and Revelation 13. Revelation 6 through 18, as a chunk of that book of the Bible, talk about the different judgments that are happening through the seven-year tribulation. It's the seal judgment. Seals are broken, meaning seals are, you know, like scrolls are ripped open and judgment is coming. There's a trumpet judgment with loud, thunderous trumpet blasts where judgments are being poured down on unbelievers in the world, people who've rebelled against God. And then bold judgments are being poured out on them. It's a devastating point in history. And yet, if you look at verse 30 of Mark 13, you'll see that a generation will not pass away until all these things take place. I believe that's specifically talking about the remnant, the remnant, the believing Jews. You say, this is far-fetched. I mean, this small group of people are the only ones that are believing. They're the only ones surviving the tribulation. Well, think about the population of the world right now and how many true believing Christians there are. Not talking about Christendom, not talking about everybody who has a bumper sticker or a, a Nickthus fish on their car, or I'm not talking about conservatives politically. I'm talking about genuine converted believers. There's just a small remnant of us in the world. I believe there are those that are multiplying out throughout the nations, and I think the Lord's kingdom is being built, but ultimately it's believers who survive. And the Jews are front and center during the tribulation. Mark 13, 30. Again, this generation will not pass away. Generation means nation. 
meaning the Jews, the ethnic Jews that are believing are the ones who make it. The Jews stand strong because they flee Antichrist. In 167 BC, Seleucid king of Antiochus, he sacrificed swine to, in the Jerusalem temple altar um, he made to Zeus. So he slaughtered pigs, unkosher animals to Zeus in the temple. AD 40, the insane emperor Caligula, he thought himself a god and he started to construct a statue in the, um, the Jewish temple and tabernacle. And um, in that inner sanctum, it was destroyed in AD 70. um, I already mentioned General Titus upended all of the nation of Israel or Jerusalem, I should say, the city of Jerusalem, temple and all turned to rubble. In 2 Thessalonians, I want to just point this out. People were People at the, in the early church were really scared because there was so much persecution in the early church that they were s- certain and convinced that they were in the tribulation, that they had missed the rapture, that things are going wrong, that Antichrist must be here. I mean, it must be Nero or some Caesar or something. It's so bad on God's people that we are being destroyed, so we're scared to death. And Paul said, let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, revealed the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God and object of worship. Now, just because the abomination desolation hasn't officially happened yet, just because Antichrist hasn't been revealed yet on that scale, be not deceived. The spirit of Antichrist is in our age present today. And you can read about the Antichrist that's coming in the future, and you can discern levels of Antichrist work in in our world today, and we need to be armed and equipped for that. So read that with this in mind. He exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So he takes his seat in the temple, proclaiming himself to be God. He goes on from there. He says, verse 8, And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and deception. Believers flee from this. I'm concerned about wars. I'm concerned about evil in our world. The deepest concern I have in my lifetime is, is false teaching, though, that ensnares people's hearts, that destroys people's souls. I'm not taking anything away from the destruction and the grief of that. But it's so important that we cling to the gospel, that we run, and we run from satanic ideology. 2 Corinthians 10 says we're supposed to destroy every speculation, every satanic speculation, every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We're to take that captive. And you do that by just coming to the Bible. You fight Satan by coming back to the Bible, coming back to the truth. Every time Jesus was tempted, what did he say? It is written, it is written, it is written. He comes back to the graphe, back to the scripture. Coming to church, to a place where the Bible is taught, this is what helps you fight against what's false, and it gives you a ready answer to help other people do the same. Brings me to my second sub-point, discern truth from error. 
Verse 19 says it's as bad as it's going to be. What does that look like? Look at verse 24. It says, but in those days after the tri- that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, the powers of heavens will be shaken. Uh, how bad is it going to be? Well, the world, the universe is going to go out of like synchronization and things are going to happen that I can't even explain. What does it look like for a star to fall? I'm not sure. But the moon, I mean, the sun stood still, right? According to the Old Testament account of that. I think it was in Judges or Joshua. But you have different things that are happening that are apocalyptic. And during this time, it's important to understand that when the universe is shaken, people can stand firm in the truth and not be shaken by false Christs. Verse 21, if you go back up then, if anyone says, look, here is the Christ. Look, there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Don't be seduced by things, no matter how bad it gets. You go to the third sub-point, recognize the worship. Recognize, recognize and worship the true Christ. Who's the true Christ? Verse 26. And then they will see the Son of Man. So you flee any Christ, you cling to truth, and then you see the Son of Man. See the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory to send out his angels to gather his elect from the four corners of the world. This is a direct reference to Daniel 7, one like the Son of Man, the Ancient of Days. He's got dominion and glory, peoples, nations, languages, and everlasting dominion. The Son of Man is the most used title for Jesus, and it's all referencing the fact that he's coming back fully God and fully human as the King of kings and Lord of Lords. And this is our hope. This is how you need to be grounded. You need to know what's happening geopolitically. You need to know who's behind it satanically. You need to know what to do about it, which is to flee Satan, flee um, ideology, wrong-headed thinking, flee the liberal thinking that is like like watering down the blame, trying to put blame in sort of the cycle between Israel and and the Arabs. That's all weird smoke and mirrors to to like kind of give Satan coverage. I think that's what it is. We need to unmask that, realize that's wrong. There is a satanic agenda that's out there to destroy souls, let alone do damage to people physically. So we got to do that. But then you got to recognize who is the true Jesus. The true Jesus is the one that is defined in Daniel's prophecy. He's the son of man, the ancient of days. He's the one that wins in the end. The beast loses and Jesus wins and has dominion over all. The vision of our hope is Christ. He's more powerful than anyone or anything. He grounds us with his supremacy and with his sovereignty. And we look for him to rapture us out of this world. Verse 27, he gathers the elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So how are the Jews actually supposed to do all these things? This all comes back to the big debate, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. If we're responsible to flee Satan, flee satanic teaching, to cling to the true Christ, how are we supposed to do that? Well, we're supposed to watch how the Israelites did it. But how did they do it? Well, they're as faithful as they are, but I skipped, a, I skipped over a couple of verses intentionally to build this point in the end. Everything comes back to um, verse 20. Look at this in Mark 13. 
It says, and if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. So the idea is just as the Israelites would run out of gas, this 144,000, just as they're going to like fall off the cliff, Jesus ends the, the moment and says, okay, enough testing. I'm going I'm to bring you safe to heaven. We're going to end this tribulation at that point. I used to get so scared as a kid. Who like me in the 70s um, were, were you know, subjugated to watch the Left Behind series reel to reel? Who would admit that? The, 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 yeah, three of you. Okay, I see that hand. It's the, it's the you know, you know um, reel to reel where we had to watch that. This stuff scared me to death. These women running on the bridges and whatever, and you have helicopters coming in, demon helicopters to take you to hell. It was terrifying. But um, ultimately, we don't run through our Christian life that way. That's not how we roll as Christians, especially you Calvinistic believers that believe in the sovereignty of God, that God is in control of everything. God's in charge. Amen? He's sovereign. He's in charge. And we have to know that even when things are gut-wrenching and difficult, that God is in control. So point two, why believers will be faithful through the worst possible circumstances. God plans their survival. Verse 20, he cuts short the days. He curtails the days. This is immediate, sovereign, intervening hand. You say, that sounds robotic. It's not robotic. God cares about you and loves you intimately enough to keep you out of trouble. It's the father, it's the parent who's watching the kid and giving some leash and latitude and saying, okay, it's good for you to do this and this, and you got to spread your wings, and you got to skin your knees, and, and then you go, whoop, whoop, that's too much. we got to stop at this point. That's parenting, and that's how God's hand is on you. He won't, keep, he won't let you stumble to the point of apostasy. He won't let you go into unbelief. He'll keep you there. You say, what will I do if, if my life is on the line and it was either, you know, proclaim Christ or, I mean, deny Christ or you'll be killed. You won't deny Christ. You'll stay strong in that because God won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. He won't put more on you than he puts in you to bear up under it. That's how God works. Nobody would be saved apart from God's sovereign and perfect and immediate intervention. He ensures, he plans their survival, he ensures their survival. Verse 20 says that, the elect whom he chose. And this is portrayed beautifully by Christ. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when the troopers came in, the stormtroopers came in, awful, and they're terrorizing Jesus. The cross is terrorism. Jesus was unjustly crucified, tortured and crucified and killed by Rome. Well, his Jesus-believing band is leaving him, forsaking him in that moment. But Jesus is also protecting them as they run from him. Remember, his apostles all leave. It says in John 18, 4, it says, Then Jesus, knowing that this would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? He's talking to the Romans to hold them off as his disciples flee. Jesus is literally standing in front of the Roman authorities and putting his life on the line so his friends can escape in that moment. Even though he didn't want him to abandon, he's still protecting him. It's an amazing catch-22. They answered him, We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to him, I am he. 
Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. But when Jesus said, I am he, it says, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So Jesus says, I am, which is um, the, you know, ego e me, but it's pointing back to the Hebrew name for God, which is Yahweh, I am. I am he. He's saying basically before Abraham was, I am. I am the I am, the self-existent one. And the power of God splashed the Romans down to the ground. They were going to take Jesus any sooner than Jesus allowed them to take him. See the point? And at the same time, he knocked him over, he bowled him over to save his friends and kept the Romans from hunting them down in, in the woods. He said to them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. That's nobility. That's, that's the Lord's care where he has you in his hand. That's what we cling to when life gets hard, when life gets unexplainable. Remember the intimacy and the care of God where he has you in his hands. So he shortened the days for their survival. Now, I've got a few concluding practical applications, and these are um, applications from Pastor Nathan Schneider. I basically wrote my introduction as a blog, and um, it wasn't completed, and so Nathan is finishing my homework for me, and he wrote these as practical applications, and they were so good that I just said, I'm just going to give you credit and just read them at, at the close. So listen to these, and it'll be, it'll be published this week early in the week now that I've said that publicly. All right, number one, it's right for believers to pray for God to execute his justice upon evil and evildoers. Think of all the imprecatory prayers. It's right for believers to pray that God will execute his justice upon evil and evildoers. It's right, too, for government to protect us as citizens. That's Romans 13, it's Genesis 9, it's good to be protected. It's right, three, for believers to leave individual vengeance and justice to God. Now, we're indignant, we're righteously indignant, we're angry, we're, we're, we're working through that. And at the same time, we have to rest in the justice of God and the vengeance of God, Romans 12, 9, Deuteronomy 32, 35. Number four, it's right to pray for our enemies to be converted it's right to pray for our enemies. It's right to do that. Jesus said for us to do that. Number five, it's right to pray for peace. Number six, Israel is not responsible for Hamas. That's the claim against them. There's no more, and we know there's no moral equivalence. Um, I think this is number seven. God promises to curse those who curse Abraham's descendants. So there is a specific curse on people who go against Abraham's descendants, meaning the Jews. Genesis 12, 3, Deuteronomy 37, 30, verse 7. Number eight or nine, Israel is also not experiencing the kind of divine protection they once enjoyed. This is a key point. Deuteronomy 28 and 29, the blessings and the cursings on Israel. The second half of that is the cursings of Israel because they forsook. Um, they live now in the time of the Gentiles and they currently live outside of the umbrella of the covenant protection. It's part of what we're seeing go on. Israel will experience worse tribulations in the future. And that's... Uh, what's called Jacob's trouble, Jeremiah 30, verse 7. And then lastly, God will ultimately save and restore Israel as he brings her through the future time of trouble. 
That's what we're reading about here. There is hope. Now let's get real practical and try to apply this to your prayer life. Number one, pray for peace, the peace of Jerusalem. We should pray for Jerusalem. Pray, pray for peace. Psalm 122.6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Number two, pray for the salvation of Israel through trials. Pray for conversions through trials. Next, pray that God's justice would be executed against evildoers. It's not wrong to do. It's right to do. Next, pray that God would open hearts to think about eternal things. And then pray that Israel would have safety from her enemies. And then here's the last one. And I think this is important. This is our evangelistic witness. Pray for wisdom as to how you can answer questions from unbelievers about what's going on and what the Bible says about it. In other words, you got to listen to a message like this. You got to think through scripture. You got to think through your stand. Think through what you think is going on because people are talking about this nowadays. And I think it is important to talk politically and talk in terms of political rightness and wrongness and the way to correctly think. But it's also important to identify the satanic false teaching that is pride driven and it's death and killing driven versus conversion driven. And Christ exalting, the true Christ, the true Savior, the true Lord. And you can make that dividing line and say they have a false Savior, a false method, a false ideology, a hubris, and a pride that is against God and against humanity and destructive versus the true Christ, the true Lord, the true saving gospel and grace that's through the Abrahamic covenant the promise that was made to Abraham that in, in him all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The nations should come to faith in Christ. I mean, Mark 13, verse 10, it was an earlier verse. He's writing these things, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. That's our goal. That's what we pray for. And I pray you have a window of opportunity to preach the gospel because things are hard and rough right now in our world.